Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Monster Hunter Sea Red. Plus, does it take a mullet to bring on a heavy metal storm? Talking squirrels and settled science. Trials and defibrillation. Plus, part 16 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. On the podcast this time, we talk with Alan Pollock, Bain cover artist on many Bain books, including all the Monster Hunter series books by Larry Correa, and Larry Correa's Grimnoir Chronicle books as well. Alan's cover will appear on the new Monster Hunter entry that's coming out, Monster Hunter Nemesis, which will be out in hardcover during the first week of August fascinating interview, so that's coming up, and we continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, here's the news. Hey, we have new monthly free fiction and free nonfiction on the website, Laura. So what's up with the uh, fiction and nonfiction this month? Well, for our fiction, we have a cool story by Charles E. Gannon. Set in the world of his Nebula-nominated and what was that other one he won? The Compton Crook Award? Mm-hmm. Compton Crook winner. Yeah. Uh, fire with Fire and in the world of the upcoming Trial by Fire, which will be out in August. Laura, what's the story on this story? Well, this one's called A Thing of Beauty. And in this future, the indie group isn't known for its humanitarian principles. They're all about the bottom line, even if that means taking steps that most would find appalling. But the higher-ups are about to find out that when you put human lives on a balance sheet, you may not get the results you're after. Also new for June is the second and final installment of an article by neuroscience researcher and science educator Dr. Ted Roberts, explaining what science is and isn't, and why the personality cult of the scientists is often misguided. Though we hear a lot of political sturm und drang to the contrary, Dr. Roberts tells us why Science is never settled. Sounds interesting. And both of these are available at Bain.com, yes? They are. They're on the front page of the website, Bain.com. Check it out. I want to welcome Bain cover artist Alan Pollock to the podcast. Hi, Alan. How are you? Alan Pollock was born in New Jersey. He escaped to New York where he attended the School of Visual Arts uh, Parsons School of Design and the New York Academy of Figurative Arts in Manhattan. Do I have those right, Alan? Uh, yes, yes, you do. Yeah. So after uh, after knocking about for a bit, he was for several years a full time staff artist at TSR, and then at Wizards of the Coast, where he illustrated what seems like hundreds of Magic: The Gathering cards and other gaming pieces. His art has also appeared on the cover of Spectrum. Fantastic art. That that's the uh, well-regarded illustrators annual that all the artists um, look at to see what um, who's doing the best work. He's done cover art for many publishers, including a great many here at Bain. He is the cover artist for all of Larry Correa's Monster Hunter International series book, from Monster Hunter International to the latest Monster Hunter Nemesis. 
He's also the cover artist on Larry Correa's Grim Noir Chronicle books. I think my favorite of those is the latest, which is Warbound, very noir. In addition, Alan is the artist for David Drake's horror story collection, Night and Demons, very cool cover there. And uh, for Sarah A. Hoyt's Dark Ship Thieves, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Fledgling, uh, James Hogan's Migration, a couple of Bertrand Chandler covers in there, and uh, I'm sure I'm leaving something out. Maybe my favorite cover of all is um, Catherine Acero's Ruby Dice cover. Uh, Alan, can you tell us how you came of a, Can you tell us how you kind of came up as an artist? Do you did you know it was what you wanted to do from an early age? Well, I wouldn't say it was what I, I, I've always been into drawing and uh, monsters and science fiction from when I was little. But as far as knowing that I was going to be uh, an illustrator, I would have to say probably not. Um, probably not until I got into college because um, I, I really didn't know uh, that that was even possible, being an illustrator um, when I was little. Uh, I, I certainly loved the genre, but I... Um, I just didn't know that that was uh, something you could do to make money was to paint creatures and <laughs> things like that. So uh, it wasn't until you know I got older and started finding game products and books and things like that where I started to see the artwork on products and realized that somebody was painting them and that that would be a lot of fun to do. So yeah. I think I think I wanted to be a herpetologist or something like that when I was younger. You know, something to do with lizards and creature kind of things, you know. Yeah. Well, you certainly draw them well now. Is um uh... <laughs> lots of practice. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll give you more, I'm sure. Uh when did it dawn on you that uh hey, I can do this um and it'll be incredibly fun probably. <laughs> Yeah, I think, well, I think, um, you know, I I, um, I started out trying to get work with a lot of the New York publishers and didn't have a whole lot of luck because I, I really wasn't, didn't have my skills up to par uh, to, to, to do the book cover, even though I thought I did at the time. So it was when I first uh, sent my work to TSR, really, um, they gave me my first shot at doing a magazine cover for them. Uh, I think it was Dragon Magazine might have been, um, or Dungeon Magazine. Those were like their their two main magazines, and that was really it. You know, once once I did a cover for them, um, uh, it was like so the Dungeon Magazine was like these underwater hobgoblin things that I painted, and that was it. Once I did that, they started giving me fairly regular work, and um, that was really really cool. And started getting paid to create. Uh, fantasy art so to speak so without that was the beginning of it so what was it like they took you on to staff eventually didn't they they did yeah um it was uh i think at the time i had just picked up an agent um in new york city and i was just really you know i was only just beginning so i was getting a little bit of work through my agent and then and I was working freelance for TSR that was pretty much it and the art director at the time was uh, saying how um, they were looking to get a staff artist and asked if I was interested and I, I said yeah that could be cool and um, didn't think anything would come of it but and within I don't know I don't know how long it took it's probably a good six or seven months 
they were doing a toy fair in New York City, and they were going to be there. GSR was going to be there, the, uh, the art director. And they wanted to meet me, so I went in to talk to them, and that was it. They hired me uh, on the spot when I went into the interview, so uh, it was pretty cool. Then uh, TSR, I guess TSR got bought by Wizards of the Coast. Is that when you went to start working on the Magic cards and the, and the gaming systems there? Yeah, well, see, when I was, when I was um, working at TSR, it was before Wizards of the Coast actually uh, bought them out. So there was a lot of uh, good times and bad times, let's say. Um, when I first got hired there, I didn't realize all the turmoil that was going to ensue. I mean, it was it was exciting and fun, and and I worked in a room uh, with a bunch of artists, which was really, really, really cool. Um, but it wasn't long. It was probably a two-and-a-half-year two stint that I had there where they started to downsize and get ready to sell the company, and Wizards of the Cost bought it. And uh, I was laid off with a load of other people. A lot of the artists actually... Uh, quit uh, before they got laid off. So I was one that did not quit, um, and I was one of the casualties. So, and then they bought, then you know, Wizards of the Coast bought them out, moved it out to Seattle, and then I think Hasbro took over after that. So, well, what was it like to, um, and what's it like when you're working with a bunch of Gaming illustrators, uh, you say there's a room, you're all in the same room together doing creative work? That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's probably, it's fairly unique. I mean, I, you know, I, I'd imagine back in the day when uh, when uh, Warner Brothers was doing the Bug Bunny cartoon, I'm sure it was a similar setup. You know, we had a bunch of guys animating and drawing and creating and goofing around, and that's kind of what it was like. It was... Uh, it was uh, me and, I don't know, I think four or five other artists. Not all the artists were in the room. There were two guys, uh, Fred Fields and uh, Paul Jackways, I think, were, they were the two guys that had their own little offices. But it was it was me and, you know, Jeff Easley and Tony Sudlow and Rob Ruppel and Dana Knutson. I'm trying to think if that's all of it. I think that's pretty much who was in there. Um but it was great. It was great. You know, you got to turn up the music and and uh, rock out and goof around and, you know, <laughs> get mm-hmm. started late on the work and sometimes have to come in after hours to make up the lost time because we, you know, we were always messing around. But, yeah, you locked the door and no one bothered us. We were kind of in our own little space. It was, it was pretty cool. <laughs> Do not feed the artist. <laughs> so- exactly. <laughs> So, um, how many cards and, and various pieces like that do you think you ended up doing? I, I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of cards that you did. Yeah, the magic cards came after. The magic cards kind of started after I was fired. Um, it was probably a good. Uh, I don't think it was as much as a year. It was probably a good six months after I was let go that I submitted my work to Wizards of the Coast and started getting magic cards. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think at this point I probably – I know I've done over 200 cards. I mean, I've been working doing magic cards for quite a while. Um, so definitely over 200. Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of the cards get reprinted in their, their uh, core sets that they, they launch every now and then. So uh, it's pretty cool. 
So it's an ongoing. You're still doing them? Yeah, I don't do them as much, but I, yeah. I still do them. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so yeah, talking about book covers, um, when I look at a, a Pollock cover for Bain, um, there's two things that that jump out at me. Um, uh, the first is the amazing action-filled composition that you bring to every cover, and the second is that you seem oh, to, yeah, um, really everything just—I mean—it seems like it's jumping out of the book and uh, and uh, into the and saying, "Come and come and read me, reader." Um, and the <laughs> the second is that this—you seem to have this love affair with the color red, and and all the shades of red. Am I misseeing this? Um, you know, I see a couple of covers that don't have, you know, Monster Hunter Alpha is, is, is blue tones and grays. But, well, just tell us how you think about color as an artist, I think. Well, I'm going to have to go back and look because uh, if that's the case, I'm going to have to uh, start coming up with some different color palettes because I don't want to keep repeating myself. But uh, I know a lot of famous uh, artists back in the day used to go through their blue period and green period and red period, so... But uh, no, I, I think I think you know as far as red, red just pops. So I mean, it's it's easy to you know to use it as a color to pop. It, you know, to to always uh, saturate the whole the whole painting in, in red would be would would probably not be a good thing. But uh, um, you know, typically, I mean, I, the color usually is dictated by the scene. For me, um, it's usually uh, the mood of the of, of the painting. I mean. The, the cover you mentioned before the, from the, the Grimoire series, which happens to be my favorite of the, of the series that I've done, um, there was, that was pretty, uh, not green, but it was pretty, um, I don't know what you want to call that, a uh, lot of yellows in it. Um, it was a night scene, and it was kind of a monochromatic painting. And there was there might have been a little splash of red in there somewhere because there were some neon lights. But um, Well, it's sitting over on my desk. Maybe I should go on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the cover, what uh, what colors. Yeah, I mean, you know, if it's a night scene, if it's, a, you know, where they are, you know. I usually go by the lighting. I, I love creating light, and um, I usually, uh, a lot of times the color is dictated by the light source, um, the time of day, um, you know, or the mood of, this, of the scene, you know. Um, so uh, I don't know if, if I'm repeating um, some color schemes. It might, it might have to do with that. It might have to do with uh, the type of book that I'm that I'm reading. I tend to stick pretty close to. Uh, I, I tend to try to find a scene in the book that it, that gets me excited. Um, I'm not very good at reading a book and then coming up with a scene or an idea that is not in the book. Some guys are really good at doing that, coming up with a like an alternate scene that might have been edited out kind of an idea where it's not in the book, but it has the flavor of the book. Yeah. I'm usually, I've always been a big fan of Michael Whalen where he kind of, you, you look at the cover and you go, Oh, that's that character. And Oh, that's that scene. And that's what's going it, I, I, you know, I guess it's growing up too with a, you know, with album covers back in the day when they had the big album cover and you listen to music and look at the album cover and tie the two together and the music with the art and, so for me, you know, the book cover usually has to reflect the story. So um, that's always, you know, that's always how I go about it. So, well, can you take us through the process? Um, how, how would you make a Monster Hunter cover? How would how would you start, and how would it uh, how would it go until you finally got the thing done? 
Well, for Monster Hunter, I mean, Larry's awesome. I mean, his stories are so visual, especially the Monster Hunter series. There's so many, there's so many cool scenes and characters and craziness that goes on in that series. I love it. It's, uh, I, I, uh, I, I really am crossing my fingers that someday they make it a TV series or a, or a movie based on those books. I really hope so. But, uh, for him, you know, really any book, a lot of times they want the main character on the cover. A lot of times they want a female character on the cover as well. Um, it tends to draw the, you know, I don't know if the audience is typically male. I'm not really sure about all that kind of stuff. But, you know, they usually want the main character on the cover. So that kind of sets it. So if I'm going to do a scene from the book and the main character has to be in the scene, that kind of narrows it down quite a bit. Um and then I try to find a scene in the book. And if there isn't a really cool scene that involves the main character, uh, then, I, then I'm going to have to go the route of uh, combining some elements to kind of get the idea across or the flavor across of, you know, something that maybe wasn't described in the book but is maybe an alternate scene, like I was saying. And I typically don't go with a scene that's near the end of the book because I don't want to give the ending of the story away and I want someone to look at the cover and say, well, I haven't read that part yet. I'm almost at the end of the book. That must be the end. And, you know, it gives, kind of gives too much away. So um, I usually go with something in the earlier first half of the book, maybe. Um, and that's it. You know, once I come up with something with the, usually the main character and some uh, variations, I, I usually do several sketches based on that, different approaches. Um, and uh, I, you know, something like Monster Hunter, I try to put a good amount of action in it. Um, and uh, my sketches are fairly loose. I don't get too crazy with really tight sketches. Um, but then once the sketch is approved, then I go ahead and, and uh, work up a tighter drawing. I use photo references, models. Um, uh, obviously, if you're doing any kind of creatures or fantasy elements, they're based on, you know, you don't have a real-life creature or dragon to, to model for it and pose for you. But it's usually based on lots of photo references of animals and so on and and, uh, you know, I work up a tight, finished drawing and, and then uh, sometimes do a color study. Some Bain has um, definitely had situations where they want a color study for their catalog, so sometimes you have to do a quick color study for them. And, um, and then after that, I go ahead and paint. Um, sometimes uh, a lot of stuff I do for Bain is digital. I use Corel Painter. A um, little bit of Photoshop, but it's usually more for the editing, editing some things different, for different effects, but most of it is done in Corel Painter. But I also do a lot of uh, combination where I'll do oil um, and digital, go back and forth. So what, um, do the digital art, print it out, put it on the easel, and uh, then bring it back? And Yeah, I mean... Um, yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, yeah, I'll print it out um, and uh, work on it. Or sometimes I'll just, you know, I'll start off doing oil. You know, I'll start off the, the drawing and the painting, and I'll get almost halfway or, or more than halfway done on, you know, using oil, and then I'll scan it in and finish it digitally. So sometimes it starts digital and goes back to oil and comes back, or sometimes it starts oil and goes to digital. You know, depends. Depends on how I'm feeling. How I'm feeling it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Does it ever bother you when you end up with, with not having a physical cover that you can then uh, 
sell or look at, or is it just part of the part, part of the job? Yeah, it bothers me. It bothers me most of the time. Um, that's the that's the downside. I mean, digital digital is fun. It's really cool. It's uh, easy to make corrections. Um, it's easy. You don't have to worry about things drying, and you can just be done with it at the last possible second and send it off and get it approved, and it's done, and it's awesome. Um, and you can experiment a lot more than you can with with traditional medium. But the thing that you know, got me into doing this kind of art was going to Society of Illustrators in New York and going to some of these conventions and seeing the actual paintings and and the drawings. And that's really what, you know, drove me to do this. That's um, the best part of it is standing in front of the art. Anybody that's seen the book covers or seen magic cards and has not actually seen the original art is really missing out um, because it's it's night and day. I mean, to be able to see the painting in front of you and the brush strokes and know that somebody actually did that with their hands, um, it's a whole different experience. So I would much rather have a painting of every piece of art that I created, but it just isn't isn't that, that way and sometimes isn't possible due to time restraints. So, um, but I do uh, I do find myself more and more uh, doing my own art. Um, for myself, for either collectors or a lot, there are a lot of conventions out like you know, LuxCon and Spectrum Live where they encourage uh, traditional medium, you know, for collectors. And so for those kinds of conventions, uh, you need to have traditional paintings. You need to have, you know, original art to sell if you want to make money at those conventions or even attend. LuxCon is strictly traditional medium, so... What kind of, um, when you do traditional medium, what is the traditional medium that you prefer the most, or is there one? Yeah, it's always oils. Um, oils or pencil, you know, either way. But uh, for color, it's it's always oils. It's always been oils. So, actually, that's not true. When I was in high school, I, I actually started with acrylic. Um, I used to do... Uh, uh, when album covers were big back then, um, I was in the, you know early 80s I guess it was uh you know yeah. a lot of uh I did a lot of heavy metal album covers and that's kind of what I that's kind of music I liked anyway so you know I did a lot of Iron Maiden covers and <laughs> things like that that were again driven by creatures and things and so I, I used acrylic and painted on backs of uh, denim jackets and and uh would, would sell them um for some pocket change to buy more albums pretty much is what it went to <laughs> <laughs> So well, I don't know why cool. I started you... off with acrylic paint, doing cover uh, jackets, and then somehow when I decided to paint for a living, I didn't continue doing acrylic. Somehow I dropped that ball and and uh, picked up oils and started doing oils. Um, I love oils, though. I mean, it's just uh, the, the richness and the, the blending and the color, everything about it uh, to me is superior but that's you know personal choice i guess have you has anybody ever shown up with one of those jackets at uh at a show or at a at a convention um no no i you know i i did quite a few for friends of mine and i i know that some of my friends from back then still have them uh, i know one of my friend's sisters uh has one um but I did a lot of paintings for, for people that I was not friends with uh, that I went to high school with that I, I haven't seen since. So, <laughs> you know, it's not like there's hundreds of them out there. There might be 20 or 25 of them out there. 
um, floating around and they're, you know, by now, I mean, they could have disintegrated by now. So it depends on how much they were worn, I guess, and how much they were washed too. <laughs> You're washing away a Pollock <laughs> original, man. So what, um, what does your studio look like? What's your setup? How do you work? What's a typical work day like? Or is there a typical? <laughs> My studio, well, <laughs> I wish I had this really, really cool studio, but I don't. Um, I have, uh, I'm living in a very large house. I'm living in a 3,700-square-foot colonial farmhouse up here in, in the country. And, uh, when I, and, you know, when I first moved in here, um, uh, there's, a, there's, I don't know, four bedrooms in the house. So I took the guest bedroom. It's a very bright room. But uh, that's where I painted. And, you know, I'm not going to get into all the personal stuff that went on with, you know, divorce and everything else, but that's pretty much where I where I painted and worked and never really bothered to fix it up into a really cool studio, but it was bright and it was a good room to paint. Um, and so that's where I worked for the most part. And then over the past two years, um, uh, my girlfriend moved in with her kids uh, uh, while her kids are here part-time. She moved in and... By doing that, with my two kids being here, um, I ended up giving up my studio space to her daughter, and I moved my studio into a small office um, in the house. So uh, it's only temporary, um, <laughs> but I am here in a smaller room in the house um, with, with some windows, but it's very small and, and somewhat cluttered because it's, you know, small room, <laughs> and things just get thrown every which way when you work. So... Uh, you know, it's not a very exciting studio, but, you know, I have my computer and my drawing table and uh, plenty of brushes and paints and plenty of reference material and lots of art books and everything else around. Shelves with toys, lots of toys, action figures, aliens, dragons, uh, some Lord of the Rings stuff, robots, anything. Any of that kind of stuff is really good for uh, for reference, you know, any kind of robot or dragon that you can hold in your hand and twist and turn and you know for uh for ideas or for you know drawing and working out anatomy anything like that if you get a good one um it's handy so uh yeah skulls you know animal skulls any, any kind of thing like that so it's not a very exciting studio but well it sounds pretty exciting <laughs> someday the way you're describing it sounds not too uh sounds pretty exciting It's, you know, I mean, when, when people walk in, it's kind of like, whoa, you know, because, I mean, you know, your typical, I think your typical person, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm going to be 50 this year. So, uh, and while I don't feel, feel I look 50 or feel 50, uh, I think your average 50 year old guy does not have, uh, action figures in his room and <laughs> video games and, and some of the things that I have in here. So I think, you know, for your average Joe, if they walked in, they would probably be a little, a little surprise, but uh, it's all visual support and visual excitement and things that inspire me. So it works for me. I have my uh, I play guitar, so I have my guitars in here and my amplifier, and you know it's all good. <laughs> well, there's a there's not a whole lot about you out on the web. I couldn't find many interviews, but um, I did run across your great Pinterest page. Um, you collected all kind of cool art in your favorite artist board, and I, I encourage anybody to have a look um, there just for the discoveries that that you out there might make from looking at Alan's uh, 
Alan's influences. What are some of your influences, by the way, in science fiction and maybe beyond science fiction? I, I think that's what, you know, uh, Pinterest to me, um, I think, <laughs> well, to be honest with you, I mean, I saw um, on Facebook, Lauren uh, Panapinto from uh, from Orbit Books was talking about Pinterest and, and that she finds goes there to find a lot of uh, illustrators and was talking about how that's a good way to promote yourself uh, through social media. So uh, I figured, well, I, I don't even know anything about Pinterest. Maybe maybe that would be a good idea. So I went on, and when I, when I went on Pinterest, um, I knew nothing about it, and I started seeing all these really cool images and referencing. And I do so much referencing for for you know, images, for detailing, and for everything else from my artwork. So, and I'm always looking at artwork in general. Um, for inspiration and, and, you know, not to copy, obviously, but for just to, to see what people are doing and see what, you know, what's in, what's not in, what, you know, whatever. Um, uh, it excites me to see other people's artwork. Uh, so I went on there and started just seeing all this really cool stuff. And then I started making my own folders and making my, they call them boards on there. So I started making my own boards for this and that and the other thing. And it wasn't so much to be like, hey, come follow me. But it was more for me to have a place where I could go and have folders separated for all the different things that excite me, you know. So, and, you know, of course, uh, I'm sure most artists think that, Everything, you know, everything that they like is the coolest stuff. You know, I my dragons that I have on my boards are are the best dragons because I I know what a good dragon is. But of course, that, that's silly. But um, you know, it's all your personal taste. But uh, I try. I just you know, I just go on there and uh, you know, my favorite artists on there. I mean, I have so many pieces. Of, I, I find new artists every day when I go on there. Guys I've never even heard of. Lots of foreign European artists I've never even heard of. Um, that just do crazy art and uh, and in all different styles. I mean, I tend to always I'm, I'm drawn towards realism, so I tend to always go that direction. But I'm very I love animation, so animation is you know inspires me. I like some art that's very simple. I like surrealism, a lot of modern surrealism. A lot of Brian De Spain is one of my favorites. It's uh, just cool imagery, fun stuff. So it's not overly technical. It's not overly, you know, it's not hardcore science fiction. It's not a specific genre. It's just fun, playful, cool stuff that I that excites me to look at. And this other guy, Bill Carmen, is a similar kind of approach. Um, but I've always been a Michael Whelan fan and Donato Giancola and kind uh, of uh, I have to try to sit there. Brahm is one of my favorites and Mark Zug and and there's just there's just so many guys. I, I couldn't even begin to tell you all the guys, but uh, yeah, you know, Frizzette is always the top guy, you know. But uh, there's just so many, and and you know, and on there, the other thing, one of the things that's really been getting me going over the past several years has been steampunk art. I really love the imagery for steampunk. So a lot of my my newer stuff that I've been doing for my own, own portfolio has definitely been driven towards uh, the steampunk genre. So I'll be doing a lot more of that for myself and and uh see where that takes me but um well the steam yeah, it's just uh, it's, it's just fun the steampunk uh steampunk really seems to border on uh on surreal at times you can do some uh, really whimsical stuff yeah. with it yeah absolutely so I, I could definitely see uh donata giancarlo and your as an influence or just a friend and well, he's both. <laughs> I've learned a lot from him. Um, yeah. You know, I met him yeah, uh, many years ago. 
um, and was introduced to him, and, and uh, we hit it off. And you know, he's he's great in that he's he's not one of these guys that is afraid to tell you things. You know, he's not afraid to show you how to paint. He's not afraid to sh- to give little tips and tricks and show you how he does things, and and which is great because he's all about spreading the wealth and. Um, and that that's awesome. And so I learned quite a bit uh, as far as traditional painting because it's you know, it came to it oil. So it, I learned quite a bit from him, from going to conventions and watching him, and uh, and coming to his house and and you know watching what he does. Um, for a while there, uh, he he lived in uh, when he well he's still in Brooklyn. Um, when I lived in New Jersey, uh, I used to go into. Uh, Manhattan and he and uh, Tony Duder Lizzie. I don't know, if, you know, everybody knows who he is, but he's he's huge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the three of us used to take a lot of do life drawing in, in Manhattan. We used to go to this class and uh, get some pizza and then go to life drawing and and that was a lot of fun. But yeah, any any time you get artists that are you know, willing to show you show you the ropes and, and help you out. It's, it's awesome. I mean, and, and, and thankfully, there's a lot of guys that are that are good like that. You know. Well, what do you say to uh, aspiring young artists when they come up to you and say, "I want to want to do this"? <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> no, I. It's, it's. I mean, look, like, like any anything that. Um, you know that you want to be good at whether it's a surgeon or a, you know an artist or a baseball player, football player, any, anything um, that requires being one of the top people. And I don't know that I consider myself one of the top people, but uh, anybody that that strives to be the best, it's um, it's a lot of work. It's it's uh, it's fun, and, you know. Certainly, if you can make a living doing what you enjoy, that's the way to go. Um, you can't beat it, um, but it it is not uh, <laughs> it is not sitting back and painting pictures and you know and and it's just easy. It's not easy. It's it's a lot of work. It's definitely a lot of work, and it's, and uh, depending on how much work you have on your plate or how uh, it's definitely in the beginning part of your career, you are putting in crazy hours. So I think for people getting into it, they. Um, they need to know that, you know, it's not, you need, you, you have deadlines you have to meet, you have, um, you know, your, uh, your technical ability has to be way up and, uh, your drive has to be way up and your passion has to be way up and you have to always be striving to get better and you can't, your consistency is super, super important. Um, people are paying you a lot of money to paint and they are looking for that consistency. So there's there's a lot that goes with it. And the other thing, too, that's that's been tough over the years for me and I'm sure other people is, you know, they always say about reinventing yourself. I mean, after so many years, you got to reinvent yourself and come up with new things and new ways to different approaches. And, and uh, you know, that can be challenging, too. And, you know, get older and you have family and different responsibilities and trying to find time to do your own work outside of your paid job, you know, it's, it's, it's ongoing. It's, um, it's not a nine to five job. So, um, you know, being, you know, for people that want to get into it, they need to, they need to be aware of that. And, um, you know, 
focus on a medium that they want to work in and, and try to find as many artists out there that they can go to the conventions and talk to them and pick their brain and see if you can somehow find a convention where they're, they're doing painting demos and watch them. And, and you'd be surprised how many artists, if you go to a convention, how many artists will tell you whatever you need to want to know, especially as far as what conventions to go to. And uh, I don't know about what art directors to talk to, but there's so much more information now on that than there was when I was getting started. So, um, you know, you can it's really it. all about figuring out that you really want to do it. I mean, if you really want to be an artist and really want to paint science fiction and fantasy art, and that's, that's your passion, then, uh, then you go for it, you know? So how do you, did I say somewhere that you like to fish? I do like to fish. Well, is that a way that you keep yourself inspired? How do you keep yourself inspired to, to reinvent yourself and such? Um, you know, there's so many things that can inspire me. I mean, fishing is really just a way to really stress, really. I mean, I love, you know, just getting out. Uh, I have a kayak. I go out in a kayak. Um, I'm surrounded by the Finger Lakes, so there's beautiful country. Um, and, you know, whether it be hiking or going for a walk or going out in the kayak or just fishing off a dock somewhere, it's just a way to ease your mind. Or if you have to come up with ideas for uh, sketches for a cover, I mean, it's a way to just, for me, I need, I need quiet when I'm trying to come up with, you know, an idea. If I'm work, if I'm painting, I could be on the phone, I could have music on, I could have all kinds of distraction when I'm painting because it's, it's, uh, I know most people probably think, you know, when they see paint, someone painting or, or they see a finished painting, they, they imagine it to be this monumental task. And, and, you know, Donato once told me, you know, he described it as paint by numbers, which it's really not, but, there's there's less you're, you're you're not creating you're not coming up with the idea at that point the idea is where it takes a lot of thought and brain power and, and concentration in, in that you're you know you're really trying to come up with this great composition and plan and, and the thing that's going to be you know hopefully never seen before kind of thing you know you can overthink it but I mean that's that's where it's you need for me I need I need to be left alone in that period I need to be away and quiet where I can think about ideas I can't sit down to a blank piece of paper and say go because um, I'll just my wheels will spin and I I draw, will draw a blank pretty much so so fishing is a great way to get out and kind of go okay so you know you know that part and that story and that was really cool and I start thinking about the story and and uh, coming up with ideas. You know, um, and as far as, you know, coming, being inspired, I mean, video games, I mean, movies, there's, you know, crazy visuals now with CGI. I mean, it's just crazy what, what they can do in a movie and video games now that, you know, are inspiring. Nature's inspiring just going out and, you know, depending on the weather and, you know, what you come across in different lighting situations and different weather atmosphere and uh, waterfalls around here that are beautiful. So uh, you just never know. I mean, you could be sitting in a bar talking to somebody and there could be light catching somebody's face in such a way and you'll go, oh, man, that's that's it. That's the lighting. That's the color I need to use for that that painting. And Or people could be talking or there could be a band playing and you could say, oh, wow, you know, the composition, the way they're all posed there. I mean, it, it could be anything that, that could inspire you uh, for a particular, you know, 
job or for your own personal peace. What are you working on at the moment? Um, right now, I have. I'm actually working on a Bane cover. Um, I'm, I'm well in the process of reading this. Reading this story, it's actually uh, uh, Chandler. I guess you call it a compilation. It's three stories they put together. Put it. We call them omnis. Yeah. Cover on it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So a Bertram Chandler. Those. Um, uh, I'm. Yep. So, uh, so I'm doing one of those right now. I'm in the middle of uh, reading through those those books, and I have uh, what else? Uh, an ebook, a Larry Correa ebook, um, based on his grimoire se uh, series, a short story um, that I have coming up. That's pretty cool. And uh, and I'm also doing something for uh, uh, an author that's doing this self-published book based on a traumatic event that happened to her in her life. It's totally different from science fiction or fantasy, but this, that the actual cover is going to be more on the surreal side, which is kind of where a lot of my own personal work is going. Um, so that's, that's been kind of fun. Um, and I have a convention coming up that I need to do some drawings and small paintings for to make some money. So, so you still go to the conventions and, uh, is it enjoyable or is it a grind? <laughs> well, I shouldn't ask you that. <laughs> I mean, I don't do enough of. Yeah, no, I, I don't do enough of them for it to be a grind. I imagine if uh, there, are, I'm sure there's guys out there that do a lot of them um, and and maybe make a living doing it. But uh, I, I I don't do enough of them for it to be a grind. So for me, it's it's fun. Um, you know, you get out, you stay in a hotel for a few days, and meet your fans and you know you're signing autographs I and mean, how many people can say they can sign autographs on the weekend so it's, it's pretty cool uh, i can't complain um you know and uh i mean magic magic's great because magic uh actually pays your way you know they, and you go all over the all over the world pays your way and you get to make money on top of it so uh it's not a bad deal you know sounds like it Hey, I got to ask you, um, since you mentioned that you painted these, <laughs> you were into album art and these heavy metal, did you have a mullet back then, Alan? No mullet, no. No mullet. No, I had long hair, but I didn't have a mullet, no. Mullets were, were kind of silly. So mullet to me, it was, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't have that kind of a job, you know. I mean, that's the thing. When you're an artist, you, it, you don't need a mullet, you know. You, you, can, you can look however you want to look. You're not, you know, typically... Uh, even when I worked at TSR, I, I had long hair, but uh, really long hair. But I, it, you know, it it didn't matter. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't a manager. I was an artist. So uh, I've been an artist and a musician. That's what I've been. So, um, so I didn't need to do the business in the front party and the back thing. You know, I could be party all the time, <laughs> which is what it was. <laughs> Uh, you know, in the eighties when I, I was in a metal band, so in the eighties I had, you know, David Coverdale here. I had the big, you know, mop up there, so <laughs> no mullets. Alan Pollock's latest work for Bane can be seen on the cover of Larry Correa's Monster Hunter Nemesis. Uh it's out in hardcover now at booksellers everywhere. Alan, really, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And now here is part 16 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com.
Get the complete audiobook at audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at that. Now another active, young Faye Vieira, has witnessed her grandfather being killed by bad men who were after something Faye's not sure of, but she knows that they also want it from her. Faye is a traveler. She's a powerful active who can go wherever she can visualize. Her grandfather's last words have led her to San Francisco to an address that may hold the key to her future and provide her with a chance to escape those who are still hunting her. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 16 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 8 Why did I join the first volunteers? That's a tough one. My older brother, Matt, he just liked to fight and figured Germans would serve as good as any. My other brother, Jimmy, he was simple. He went wherever we went. Me, I was the one that liked to ponder on stuff. Roosevelt did like he did before with the Rough Riders. My daddy was a Rough Rider in Cuba. President Wilson didn't want him to go, but General Roosevelt wanted to prove that actives were good for the country. Got himself killed in the process. Never did like his politics. Too progressive for me, but I'd follow that man into battle any time. Lousy politician. Great leader. Sorry. The question, why'd I go? I guess I felt a duty to show that actives could be useful, that we could be the good guys. I was a fool. Jake Sullivan, parole hearing, Rockville State Penitentiary, 1928. Mar Pacifica, California. The three strangers drove Fay south along a road overlooking the ocean. The young man, who introduced himself as Francis, was driving. Lance was sitting up front, and the woman, Delilah, was in back with her. The man that had tried to hurt her was on the floor with his ankles and wrists bound and a burlap sack over his head. Every time he started to move, Delilah would kick him again as a reminder. Lance had taken a piece of charcoal from the ruined house and drawn a complicated mark on the unconscious man's forehead before pulling the sack over his head. She didn't know what that was supposed to do, but it seemed to satisfy Lance. Faye had started to ask questions in the car, but Delilah had shushed her, explaining that if the general, whoever that was, decided to let this man go, then the less he knew the better. Faye had a suspicion that Delilah had just said that out loud so the man on the floor would have some hope, and maybe that would make him more cooperative. Or maybe she just didn't want to talk. After all, Faye thought, why would a beautiful, sophisticated woman that could jump across a vacant lot and throw men through brick walls want to waste her time talking to a hayseed bumpkin from El Nido by way of Ada, Oklahoma? 
The only other conversation was when Lance apologized for his swearing and called her Little Lady. He said that he tended to cuss more when his mind was in more than one body at a time. So Faye went back to spinning in her head, examining the car, the finest thing that she'd ever ridden in, all shiny chrome and bright blue paint and soft leather, intricate mirrors on top of the spare tires, and a little golden angel on the end of the hood. She watched the ocean, amazed at how far it seemed to go until you could see the curve of the world at the edges, and even the people she was riding with, at least two of them just as special, if not more so, than she was. It was all very intimidating. They turned off the main road onto a windy gravel path. They drove under a stone arch with elaborate writing on it. Faye could read, but these letters didn't look right. They looked more like what had been scratched in the ashes of the burned house than normal words. There was a blocky shack behind the gate and someone watched them through a dark window as they passed. Or maybe something, Faye thought, as the shape swiveled to follow them and it looked entirely too triangular to be a person, unless they were wearing a very strange hat. The house at the end of the lane was spectacular, it was three times the size of the Vieira's milk barn, only instead of holding cows, it was made for rich people, and it was on top of a giant finger of land that stuck out into the ocean. Three sides around the house turned into cliffs that ended in waves crashing on black rocks far below. The front of the house had tall white pillars and more windows than she could quickly count. They parked inside a garage which seemed strange that there would be a space actually inside the house to leave your car, but this was big enough that they could probably park four tractors inside and have room to spare. She was having a hard time wrapping her brain around the kind of wealth it would take to build something like this, and suddenly the little wad of money hidden in her traveling skirt seemed pathetic. Delilah, would you kindly drag this piece of trash downstairs and lock him in the basement? Lance asked. We'll get to him in a bit. My pleasure. Delilah grabbed the man by one ankle and yanked him out onto the cement like he was a piece of bad luggage. She seems kind of scary, Faye said to the two men once Delilah was gone, the man bumping painfully down the stairs behind her. Is she going to kill him? Francis shook his head. That Gunsel? The people he works for shot Delilah's father down in cold blood. For all we know, he might be one of the ones that did it. Serves him right. Faye studied him. Francis seemed like a nice young man. Polite, friendly, well-spoken. She even had to admit that he was rather handsome. He talked like he came from the big city, but not from the poor big city, but a place with schools and houses like this. He turned and caught her staring, and she looked away quickly. Then again, he had blown a man's head off earlier without hesitation. She reminded herself that she needed to be on guard. It wasn't like she knew these people. Lance gestured for the door. Let's go get that thumb looked at. Never been bit by a squirrel before, though I have bit people as a squirrel. It looks like it hurts. You're probably hungry, too. We'll get you a room where you can clean up before supper. Faye looked down at her shabby dress. It was covered in dirt, coal dust, and speckled with dull red drops of dried blood. She had even gotten the seat dirty in the car. Sorry for the mess, she said sheepishly. What? Lance said gruffly. This? He snorted loudly. 
Girl, you don't know much about what goes on around here, but let's say that I've seen a whole lot worse. Come on. You've probably got a bunch of questions, and I've got a few myself, like who your grandpa was, why he gave you a grim noir knight's ring, and why those goons were following you. That reminded her, I need to speak with someone from that note. Is Pershing here? Or Christensen? Jones? South Under? It's really important. My grandpa's last words were that I needed to talk to somebody named Black something. Francis and Lance glanced at each other. The muscular Lance only came up to Francis's shoulder, so he actually had to look up. Your call, Francis said. The younger one was dressed in a fancy suit, and Lance was wearing worker's clothes and a dusty hat, but it was obvious which one was in charge. Nothing personal, but I want some of our people to talk to you first. I'm in charge of security around here, and nobody gets to see General Pershing until I say so. She had not come all this way to be turned back now. You listen here. I need to talk to Black somebody. My grandpa said so. Faye reached into her voluminous skirt and pulled out the little Tesla device. I think this has something to do with it. She held it out, and Lance took it, scowling as he read the plate. My grandpa was murdered by men looking for this, and I'm not going anywhere till I find out why. Oh, this ain't good. Not good at all. Lance hesitated like he was going to keep the device, but then he shook his head and passed it back. He looked at Francis. I hope this ain't what I think it is. Keep an eye on her. Don't let her snoop in anything. Then he limped away, grumbling. He's grouchy. Faye said when Lance was gone. You'd probably like to freshen up, Francis suggested. When she returned from the washroom, Francis was waiting with a sandwich on a plate. I had the cook make this for you, he said. You have servants? Well, of course, this was one of my father's estates, he answered proudly. The society has been using it since the old headquarters was destroyed. She took the sandwich. It must be nice to be rich, servants and indoor plumbing. I, well, he stammered. I wasn't going to brag, but yes, I suppose it is rather nice. Please sit down. He gestured toward a nearby table. The interior of the home was amazing. Electric lights were on every wall. This is the nicest dining room I've ever seen, Faye said, settling into a padded chair. Well, uh, actually, this is where the help eats. The dining room is back there. He drifted off, uncomfortable. Sorry, bragging again. For some reason, his embarrassment made Faye smile. She liked this, Francis. She ate her sandwich. It was good. Lance returned a minute later. Here's the deal. You seem like an all right kid, Faye, but we deal with some strange types, and there's more than a few folks who'd want nothing more than to see him dead. In fact, the predicament we're in now is because I didn't do my job a few years ago, and somehow somebody got through and put a curse on him. It ain't nothing personal, but I'll be needing to hold on to your little gun, and if you try to use any magic on the general, I will kill you. Do you understand? No need to be impolite, Francis said. I once saw a six-year-old slash a man's throat with spikes that came shooting out his fingers, Lance pointed out. Fine, 
Faye said, removing the Ivor Johnson from her pocket and passing it over to Francis. I want that back. It cost ten whole dollars. They left the kitchen area through some sort of service room, past a workshop full of machines, out into a giant foyer, then up a flight of stairs. Lance's limp was more pronounced going up the stairs, almost like one leg was shorter than the other. What happened to your leg? Faye asked. I left part of it in a demon's stomach, he responded without turning around. Francis leaned forward and whispered in her ear, You can't get a healing if too much time's passed. If it's healed on its own wrong, it'll stay that way. A surgeon tried to fix it later by cutting out all the poison bone. He's sensitive about it. He heard, Shut up, Francis. You can control animals? Sort of. Faye smiled. That would be the best power ever back on the farm. No cow would ever kick me in the hands again. What was that mark you put on that man's head? What's with the funny writing on the gate and in the house? Magic spells. Do you ever get tired of asking questions? Faye thought about that for a second. No. Where are we? Lance sighed as they reached the top of the stairs. He knocked politely before entering the first room. A beautiful blonde woman wearing a white sundress was sitting in a chair reading a thick book. Hey, Jane. She looked Fay over as she stood. Oh, honey, what happened? You've got a hole in your foot, and something beat your hand. You should have called me and I would have come down. Imagine making the poor thing walk up here with a hole in her heel. How'd you know? Fay asked, but was ignored. She didn't tell me nothing about foot problems, Lance said defensively. Damn, woman, how was I supposed to know? Is she okay? Jane asked, looking to Francis for confirmation. She must be since you brought her up here. She didn't burst into flames when we crossed the barrier, did she? Francis said, pointing back at the doorway. There were more of the curious letters carved into the wood. Hold still. Jane ordered as she set her hands on Faye's shoulders. Jane's hands were extremely warm, so warm that Faye could feel the heat through the coarse fabric of her traveling dress. Then her hands were ice cold, and now Faye was hot like she was burning with fever. She wobbled for a moment, dizzy as the flash of warmth passed. What just happened? The hole in your foot will be closed by supper, Jane answered. I just give you a little help is all. Faye's thumb felt puffy. She held it up, and the punctures from the squirrel bite were now just purple indentations. An actual healer. Only millionaires had healers. Faye felt lightheaded. I can't afford to pay you. Oh, honey, you've been listening to too many radio programs. Jane clucked reprovingly, picked up her book, and returned to her chair. Don't keep the general up too long. He's having a bad day. It's about to get worse, Lance muttered. That was part 16 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa is read by Bronson Pincho. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey. And to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a giant attack lizard descending on a special tribute concert by Def Leppard and Motley Crue, and raking havoc in his front yard for as long as it takes him to paint the scene to Alan Pollock 
Monster Hunter series illustrator and Bane cover artist extraordinaire. By the way, he does not have a mullet. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 